These are the words uh, from Jesus in the 15th chapter of John, uh, beginning in verse 12. A commandment I have for you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants but friends, because servants do not know uh, about the master's business. But everything I have learned from the Father... I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you to bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you a new commandment I give you, love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Spring break. Daylight savings time on the same day. Whose idea was that? But since it is spring break, I thought we'd do a little review this morning. And let's start with several basic questions. The first one is, why did Jesus come to earth? Well, one of the obvious answers would be Jesus came to earth so that Jesus might die on a cross on our behalf, so that we might be reconciled to God and that, that everything in the world might be reconciled to God. One could also answer that Jesus came to earth to show us what life on earth was meant to look like, to show us how to live. But we've also learned that this spring, or been reminded again, that Jesus thought he came to earth to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, to to work with God in God's mission, the Father's mission of setting the world right, of making things operate the way God intended so that people could live the life that God intended them to live. Well, why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? Why did he come at that time? Well, one answer I've often heard is, well, because things had hit rock bottom. And uh, they were no longer obeying God. They were killing the prophets and not listening to the prophets and then killing some. And so God said, that's enough. I'll pull out my trump card and sent God's one and only son. But there's another answer that is equally valid, if not more so. And that is... In the days in which Jesus came, there was a pocket of people looking devoutly for the Messiah to come. They had arranged their lives around God's word. They had been in exile in Babylon, and they didn't want that to happen again. So they had come back to Galilee and to Israel determined to live according to God's word. And so they formed parties like the Pharisees, and, and they formed groups like the, worshiping groups like the synagogue, so they could live the life God anticipated, and they looked for the Messiah to come. Well, why did the Messiah come back to Israel, not maybe some pop, more populous or larger place, more centrally located in the empire? Well, one of the obvious answers to that one is the prophet said that the Messiah uh, would be born. Both in Isaiah and Micah uh, reference uh, the birth of Jesus. Micah specifically to Bethlehem. Another way to think of it is, well, Israel did um, uh, have the status of God's chosen people. And in fact, many people believe that Jesus actually came to earth to do what Israel was supposed to do but couldn't do. They were supposed to make the world a better place. They were supposed to bless other people. They were supposed to help bring in the kingdom. They couldn't do it. But Jesus could. And that, I think, is a good answer as well. But also, you probably know that Israel was at, geographically at the crossroads of the world at that time. If you wanted to go from Arabia and you wanted to go up 
to uh, Turkey or to Asia Minor or even head over toward Rome, or if you wanted to go up and then head off east toward Babylon or Syria, you pretty much had to pass through Israel. If you wanted to leave from Egypt and go either of those places, you had to pass through Israel. Millions upon millions of people in the ancient world every year went through Israel to get to more populous destinations. So you were right there at the crossroads of the earth. And maybe that's why Jesus came to Israel. Well, if Jesus was coming to Israel, we might ask, well, why didn't he just go to Jerusalem? Just right there to the center of the religion. Why did he go to Galilee? And that's a good question, and I think an important question. One possible answer is this, that Galilee had been largely settled by people who had come back from the exile in Babylon, so they were very fired up and passionate not to have their ancestors carted back off into slavery again. So they had really, as I mentioned, organized themselves around God's Word, so that Galilee was sort of the center of all biblical study. You might consider it both the Bible Belt of its day and at the same time the Ivy League. Anybody who was anybody teaching the Word of God was going to come through Galilee and spend a large part of their training and their ministry there. Think of in the hundred years before and after Jesus, some of the greatest rabbis and teachers of human history lived in Galilee. People like Hillel and Shammai, John the Baptist. Then, of course, Jesus of Nazareth came. Later, Paul's teacher, Gamaliel. And then after that, another great rabbi named Akiva. They all basically were trained in Galilee. That's just where you went. In fact, um, I grew up with trading cards, you know, of baseball players and basketball players and football players. Ray Vanderland says if kids in Galilee would have had trading cards, there would have been pictures of rabbis, not athletes on them. It was the center of scholarship. And so God plants Jesus just right in the middle of it because he knows more about the text than anyone And yet there's also this. There was a major difference between Jerusalem and Galilee, between Judea and Galilee. And the difference was this. In Jerusalem and Judea, people tend to live in single-family units. Uh, The Greeks called them villas. We might call them condos. And some of you have probably been in ancient parts of Jerusalem, and, and you've actually seen how people lived not unlike a lot of us live. But in Galilee, they didn't live in single family units. They lived in what the Bible calls households. And in these households, archaeologists have discovered you could have anywhere from 175 to 300 people under one roof. And in fact, most of the people under that one roof were extended family, and they would even support the same occupation, whether it was supporting um, making nets or or maybe it was making baskets or maybe it was making uh, millstones. But whatever they were doing, everybody was involved, and it was an extended family living, doing life together in large community. And this, if, when you think about this, it explains a couple passages in the Bible, makes them come crystal clear. This first one, John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. That's what they understand in Galilee. It's one big house, lots of rooms. And let's say I get engaged, and once I'm engaged, I leave my house to get engaged and come back, and I start working on another room. So that when my room is ready, I can get my bride, we can be married, move into the house, and our family occupies this room under the same roof with everybody else in the family. And so often at a wedding ceremony, the groom would probably say something like this, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I come back, I'm going to get you. So that where I am, you may be also. Does that sound familiar? 
That's life in Galilee. That's, that's the way Jesus would have understood life. And then there's this other thing, and I've heard silly people say it's some sort of uh, uh, child abuse. And that is um, in Luke chapter uh, 2 when Jesus uh, is 12 years old and he gets lost and separated from his family for three days. And people say, oh, what terrible parents Mary and Joe are. No, because they always traveled in this 175 to 300 group. And if they all went to Jerusalem for the festival, the understanding would have been they're all coming back to Galilee. And the natural assumption is Jesus is with family. He's with extended family. So they're surprised, of course, to find out that he wasn't. So let me just put it this way. When God sent God's one and only son to the earth, Mainly what God had in mind is I want my son to be raised in a large, extended family. I want him to know intense community. And if I didn't, I'd send him to Jerusalem. But he came to Galilee instead. So one final question I ask you this morning, and that is, if God wanted that sort of community and family for God's only son, do you think God wants less for us? I'm going to answer this one for you as well. I think God wants for us what God wanted for Jesus, to have the experience of large, extended family, to have the experience of tightly knit community where we find ourselves encouraged and challenged and supported in everything we do. Because think about it for a moment. This is what God is doing from the beginning of the Bible all the way through is trying to gather people to God's self and put them all together. And God will call them a nation. God will call them a people. And then finally, God will call them a family. And I love what Dallas Willard says about it. Um, Dallas Willard said that God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with God as its sole sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Now, every sentence of Dallas Willard is a mouthful, but basically what he was saying is, this is God's plan from the beginning, is to form a group of people around God, with God at the center, who experience life and community together. That's what God's doing. So is it any surprise that Jesus would would do the same? Think of all the benefits that come to this large community family way of approach. Think about how much stronger we are together than we are individually. Um, And there are lots of examples in life where this happens. But one of the most interesting examples is you'll often hear the spiritual life compared to a mountain climb. Now, I've never climbed a tall mountain. But I understand that's not a solo sport. That there are heights that you can only reach if you are part of of a team of mountain climbers. And the Christian life has great heights, not only spiritually, but great heights in terms of what it is trying to accomplish to fix a broken world and to get things back the way God wants them. And that's just too hard for any of us to do alone. So we're all stronger together and we go further together than any of us can go alone. And and that makes sense to me uh, because we are so much uh, stronger that way. You know, imagine if you took the hymnal out this morning. And I'm not asking you to do this, but if you want to rip a page out of the hymnal this morning, you could do it. Tear it out. But if you wanted to rip that hymnal, all the pages in half, you couldn't. There's, an, there's a power and a strength in that uh, when we are together that holds us and binds us in a special way. Um, I've told some of you before, several years ago, we took a family vacation and it, it was a, a cruise. 
And as we got ready to leave for the cruise, we went to a bookstore and let each of our sons pick out a book that they wanted to read while they were on the ship. And I was very interested in my middle son's choice. He chose a book about the USS Indianapolis. I don't know if you're familiar with Indianapolis. Let me just clue you in real quick. It was sunk in the Pacific by the Japanese, and that was a tragedy and and notable for the tragedy. But what it also became notable for was the sharks in the Pacific were attracted, and a number of, of the sailors who survived the sinking were killed by the sharks. I thought that was an interesting choice to take on a cruise, but when I got over that and could talk to my son about it, he said one of the fascinating things was the people that got picked off were the ones that were floating out there by themselves. The ones that were together and formed sort of a tight circle, the sharks apparently did not bother them, but the ones out, the outliers, got picked off. And I think that's how the evil one operates. And we have these great intentions that we're going to do X, Y, and Z for Jesus And we try to do it by ourselves, and our best intentions uh, fall apart. We are stronger together. And so that's what God's doing, and it's no surprise Jesus is going to pick up the same message. And so um, Jesus says at one point, who are my mother and my sister and my brothers? Those who do the will of God. Jesus starts to form a large family around him. And we know that he traveled with 12 men, 7 women, and it expanded to the 70, and it expanded to several hundred We know that he did life in this sort of community because life is too difficult alone to do the things God is calling us to do. Um, N.T. Wright, who's a wonderful theologian, puts it this way. He said, Jesus came on earth in part to create an alternative family, to create a family whose blood wasn't human blood, but the blood of Christ, which was thicker than any other blood to hold us together. Joseph Hellerman, another New Testament commentator, goes further than that. And he said, when any individual is saved, they are saved to a family. There's no such thing as I believe in Jesus, I'm saved, and I'm out there doing whatever. Jesus wouldn't know what on earth you're talking about. He would assume you are saved to be part of this community working to make earth more like heaven. And it's just the perfect place to live out Jesus' command. And that is in this large alternative family that we call the body of Christ or the church. The command was love one another. Now, since this is spring break, here's another review. I know you already know this one, but you may recall commandment was, when I give a command, it's just not like I'm I'm bossing you around. Command is sometimes used um, in Hebrew to summarize a larger body of teaching. So, for example... Moses gets a whole boatload of laws from God, 613 commandments. But the summary is called the Ten Commandments. They're a summary. Like if, if you want to try to keep all 613 of these, here's the summary. And in the same way Jesus has been with these disciples for three years, and he says, friends, let me summarize for you. If you're wondering what I've been teaching you for three years, let me give you the summary. It's this, love one another. The way I love you. And it just happens, it just happens the only place you can do that is in this large, extended, alternative family. And it's amazing to me uh, in some ways, but Paul, who didn't even live in the time of Jesus, he, uh, I mean with Jesus' disciples rather, who came along afterwards, picks up on this. And look in how many Paul's letters he talks about households, families, brother, sister. Paul picks up on it immediately. 
He gets that that is what Jesus is doing. And the early church got it too. This is not in the Bible, but this is in history, and we have the records. In the third century, there's a guy named Marcus who's a Christian. Now, what you need to know about Marcus is he's an actor. And I know it sounds strange to our ears in the 21st century, but the church believed you would have a hard time keeping your faith if you were a famous actor. I don't know why they did. And so uh, the, the, the body, the extended family said to him, Marcus, you've got to get out of that. You can't be a Christian and be an actor. It's just too tough. So Marcus, as a part of this community, said, okay. But Marcus still needed to make a living. So according uh, to the records, Marcus started an acting school. If he couldn't act, he'd teach others. And the church had to say to him, now Marcus, nice try. But why would you want to lead others into that? And so they convinced Marcus, the community convinced Marcus, he's got to drop the acting school and find another profession. And this is where it's fascinating. We have this on record. The bishop of the three closest churches to where Marcus lived, including the one in which Marcus participated, sent a letter and and asked all three churches to supply Marcus with food, shelter, clothing, and money until such time as he could find another profession. Can you imagine that? Their sense of community and extended family was so strong, the family suggested you do something different. He did it. And then the family didn't just tell you what to do. They came and helped you do it. It's still that way today when the church operates like the church. I was reading an article about Ethiopian uh, Christianity in Ethiopia a couple years ago. And I've not been to Ethiopia. But as you may know, prisons in Ethiopia and in many places in Africa are like ancient prisons in like the state feels no obligation to feed you or clothe you or, or, or take care of you. You're, you're in prison and it's up to your family. If you want to eat, your family's got to bring in food. If you want clean clothes, your family has to take care of it. And so in Ethiopia, apparently one of the great things is, or interesting things, is everybody in the prison gets excited when a Christian gets tossed into prison. You know, whether they're innocent or guilty, doesn't matter when they get tossed in because they know that not only will that Christian's family bring food, their family of origin, they know the rest of the Christian community, their extended family, will come and bring food as well and clothes. And so what happens? There's more than enough clothes and food for that prisoner, and it gets shared with all the other prisoners in the prison. And they rejoice every time another Christian is tossed in and incarcerated because of the way that family works, the extended family, the church. It is, I think, Jesus' hope and dream for us to live like that together. But as Matt mentioned in the announcements, it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing because you know, the closer you get to each other and family, the more you rub up against each other. And the kind of things you thought were interesting and entertaining about a person at first are the kind of things that drive you nuts after a while. But I've always told people this. If you lived in Bethsaida or Chorazin or Capernaum in Galilee or Nazareth, there was only one synagogue in town. So you couldn't get mad at the rabbi and head down the road to another synagogue. You couldn't get upset with somebody else in that synagogue and and go across the street in your cart and go check somebody else out. You were there and you worked through it. And you need to know that real community takes time and it takes pain. Remember the velveteen rabbit who said you're not real until your skin's rubbed off? A lot of time, community works that same way. Our brothers and sisters up at our Riverside campus say it this way. They said... 
uh, that basically you don't get to quit. You don't get to quit in God's family. You stay with it because when you stay with it, you will go further together than you will ever go alone. A number of years ago, there was a, a Special Olympics competition held uh, for elementary uh, children uh, up in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And early in the 100-yard dash, the 100-yard race, uh, one of the contestants fell down. So the contestant next to him stopped and picked him up. Had a little trouble picking him up and so called for help. So the other contestants in the 100-yard race came back. And they all helped the guy up. And they all started walking the rest of the 100 yards together, arm in arm, and crossed the finish line at the same time. Did they win? Or did they lose? They won. The Christian life. The living and bringing of the kingdom on heaven to earth will only be won together.